I'm here with Nikhil Baduma, the man, the legend, one of my good friends from college. Nikhil, how do you introduce yourself? Uh, I work at the intersection of like tech and healthcare. Let me start with a memory that sticks out in my mind very vividly, which was watching the movie Your Name, uh, this animated movie with you and I think Linda in my like senior house dorm room. And we're like five minutes in and we have no idea what's going on, but you are like, this will happen, bam, 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 and then this and probably this. And you just like predicted the plot line of this movie, which I think is pretty hard to predict. How did you become such a movie connoisseur who can know the future? <laughs> Your name was a fantastic movie. Let me see. I actually didn't watch a lot of TV like growing up. Uh, like the extent of my like film filmography experience was like basically the Pokemon TV series um, and the Fairly Odd Parents. Um, but I took, I went to this like interesting high school, um, that was kind of like a liberal arts school. Um, and senior year, we had this, uh, we had this teacher, uh, Jeremy Lung. Jeremy's incredible. Probably one of my favorite teachers of all time. Um, he taught this, uh, class called film composition. And essentially it was like a, it's like an English elective on screenplay, cinematography. Um, and I remember um, just like vividly one experience in class, like probably within the first couple of weeks, you're we watching this, um, um, this movie based on a book, uh, a McCarthy book called No Country for Old Men. Incredible movie, by the way. But um just like the kinds of things you would do this in this class, it's kind of mind blowing. We would, there's like this opening sequence uh, within the first like 60 seconds, 120 seconds of the movie of like still shots, a sequence of still shots, uh, an ominous sort of like music score in the background. Um, and Jeremy like kind of plots out the, the, the movie major plot points of the movie the major thematic areas of the movie on the uh, on the whiteboard and then he overlays the still shots underneath and you're just like yeah so so, so the Cohen brothers basically just uh, told you the entire plot of the movie within the first 120 seconds through the like through the presentation of these stills and I thought that was such a clever artistic device that I feel like now every like the beginning of every movie, I watch, I kind of look for those kinds of hints. Um, one day I'll have enough, I'll have enough time on my hands to, to do something in, in film or cinema. Um, but I think just like that, that class was uh, almost single-handedly responsible for uh, why at least the plot for this movie was kind of like obvious to me after watching the, uh, the opening sequence. You graduated at MIT in two years, which is like a record as far as I know, with like a perfect GPA. Um, Wikipedia at one point had you as a child prodigy back deep down in the archives somewhere where you deleted. I'm pretty um, sure that was just a joke that someone decided to, 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 probably someone we know just like thought it was, a, it was gonna be funny to put that in there. 
Perhaps, perhaps. I mean, maybe you're not like Eric Domain or Terry Tao, but um, I'm, I'm curious. I think there is something uh, to like how rapidly you like learn how to code and stuff. I'm curious, what, what can people learn from you about like having high productivity, high rate of learning? I don't know if you're going to like the answer to this question, dude. Um, I would like any answer. I feel like there's two pieces for me and generalize to your own life at your own risk. Um, in fact, I would highly recommend you don't generalize this to your life. Um, but I think there's like, there's motivation and then there's tactics, right? Um, and everyone's motivated by different things. But once you decide, once you have motivation, then it's really about like, then what do you actually tactically do? And so maybe there's, maybe there's like certain things that are like tactically helpful. Um, some of them ended up being accidents. Some of them were like kind of by design, but I think the hard, th- hard thing to replicate is like motivation. Um, I think for me, I just happened to be in a place where I was exposed to a lot, uh, for a long time, um, for longer than most people are exposed to it. And that just gives you a foundation to like ingest new information, um, more rapidly. Um, I, uh, like, I think you and I talked about my family, like what my family kind of had to go through with, with everything around some of my medical conditions. But I think a big, a big, um, motivating factor for me early on was sort of guilt, just knowing how much hardship my family had gone through just to give me the sort of the kind of life that we, I get to have now that I was getting to have towards the teenage years of my, of my existence and just wanted to, wanted to make up for like almost like this burden or this debt that my existence created a little bit. And I think that was just like a, the guilt was such a strong motivating driver for me to just apply myself. Um, And the question is like, what do you apply yourself to? Uh, (laughs) As a kid, there's not really that many options as a sheltered Indian kid besides like study really, really hard. Um, And um, there's actually not that many things that are easy to study really, really hard on your own except math. Um, cause all you really need is your, like yourself and a book. Um, and most math books have answer keys with them. And so you kind of, you know, you can kind of self-teach and self-debug really, really quickly. And, um, so I think that was that motivation was probably hard to replicate, probably kind of like damage, psychologically damaging to replicate, to be honest, I wouldn't wish that kind of hardship early on in life upon anybody. Um, but then tactically, I think a big part of it was like just focusing on math really, really early on. Um, just gave me a way of thinking, um, gifted me a way, with a way of thinking about problems, uh, how to pick the right level of abstraction to solve problems, how to, how to approach problems of clarity, a multitude of different just like problem solving frameworks um, that were very translatable to anything sort of science oriented. Um, I think that was really helpful to me. Um, I think I was also just like this kind of like overly arrogant little kid, um, going through high school too. And so, um, I kind of force, forced the school to like, kind of just let me do what I wanted to do. Um, so if I wanted to be off campus and take classes in, at Stanford, like that's what I was going to do. And you're either like on board with the plan or you're not on board with the plan. Um, and forced the school's hand into letting me take as many science classes as I wanted to. Um, so forced the school into creating classes that didn't exist so I could do what I wanted to do. 
Um, and so I think it's honestly just lucky to be in a place where I was surrounded by supportive people willing to take a bet on an arrogant little kid, um, motivated by a lot of guilt, um, happened to just be investing in a lot of things early on in life and exposed to a lot of things early on in life that most people aren't exposed to until college. Um, and so then MIT rolls around and it's almost like seeing a lot of things for a second time. Um, and with a, with a lot of math background and thinking about software and problem solving in software is, is not really a new way of thinking at all. Um, obviously there's a whole vocabulary and like a bunch of technical things that you kind of have to navigate and learn, but just like the problem solving frameworks translate really, really well. And then there's this like really smart dude at MIT who I love. He's like such an endearing guy, uh, Anish Athle, who is now doing great things. Um, but I just remember like parking myself next to him and trying to absorb as much as I possibly could about how he, uh, how he solved problems. I did that for like a year, year and a half. Bless his soul. He's such, such a good guy. Um, but I learned so much so quickly. In fact, we work together now, not different companies, but we work together a lot on, because uh, we have a lot of overlapping problem areas. Uh, but yeah, I think I attribute a lot of learning quickly for me to just uh, Anish being willing to explain things to me um, early on when I was completely clueless with respect to software. Yeah. And you mentioned, uh, so guilt was a big component of your either conscious or subconscious motivation for a long time. Um, how, how have you like healed from that or do you still like grapple with it today in some form? To be honest, it's still definitely there. It's still definitely there. Um, I, to be honest, a big part of just like trying to get through MIT really, really quickly too was also still guilt. There's this, I don't know if I, we talked about him, but there's this incredible human being, a man named Earl, um, Earl Singer, who actually was the neighbor of uh, my best friend from high school. Um, Matt was this uh, really, really great dude, upstanding guy, um, star tight end on the, on the Bellarmine football team. Um, we barely interacted all the way up until senior year of high school. And um, this guy was hustling our art teacher with these like QR codes, uh, uh, business cards. And I was like, I kind of like this guy, you know, just, just with the side hustle. I, I respect that. Uh, we ended up getting really close in this like art, senior year art elective that we needed to do just to, to complete graduation requirements. And um, we ended up spending, he, 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 he was going to school in LA. He's doing a finance degree, needed tutoring to prepare for calculus coming up. And so we would sit at the library and uh, he would, he'd pay me for tutoring lessons. Um, and um, we would spend the entire time talking about his like business ideas and set. He was hilarious, dude. And one day um, there's this old man um, who comes to pick him up. Uh, and um, actually Matt's calling me right now. Um, I have to, uh, Oh, I think it's it's coming through my headphones. He can't hear you. Uh, are you uh, Matt can't hear you, or Matt can't hear you, Andy. But I was just talking about Matt. How you meeting you kind of changed my life in such a great way. Uh, but I will, Matt. Why don't I call you later uh, after we're done recording? 
Okay, sounds good, Nikhil. All right, dude. See you later. Bye now. Um, what were we talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah. But Earl, basically, Matt, Earl was this guy who was actually paying for his tutoring lessons. And um, Earl kind of knew that my family was struggling with um, sort of a financial side of paying for college. And just one day out of the blue, just pulled my family together for dinner and just said, look, look, um, I've already sent the, the payment for your next semester at MIT. Um, and I'm going to continue paying for your college and education for as long as you need. Um, and he was the reason why I, uh, um, you know, could stay in school. Um, but honestly, just the not wanting to spend his money was the biggest driver for like, wanting to graduate quickly. Cause the longer I was there, the more of Earl's money I was going to use. Right. So that was the, uh, that was the motivating factor, to be honest, for going through school really, really quickly. So I would say, like, all in all, guilt guilt is still, like, a big driver for me. Um, I, don't, I don't want to be a burden to people. And I know that, like, there's a lot of things for which – there's a lot of things that have happened that have made me uh, a burden in the past. And so, um, yeah, man, uh, that's, 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 that's still there. Um, it's also just uh, more recently, I would say, trying to think think of things in a more positive light. Just hey, like, so so blessed to be in a position where we are with the resources we have, the experiences that I have, and we have an opportunity to do good things in the world. So let's 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 do things that are are good that can, can maybe even outlive ourselves. Um, and if we can do that, that'd be pretty cool. And I think that's that's larger and larger, uh, uh, been a larger and larger driving motivation for me, um, or a more positive way of thinking about it, as opposed to trying to make up for some sort of debt um, or burden, past burden. Right, and that's yeah, it's such a heavy like thing to to bear and walk around with, and not having known this about you for like probably a couple of years uh, when we first like met and um, worked together and stuff. I was just always struck by, by how much you care for people and like go out of your way to kind of um, try to make everyone um, happy, like feeling uh, good, enabled, empowered. Um, and like, even when you're busy, how much you, you prioritize and, and care about your family and, and um, those people close to you. Um, so like, even if, uh, if guilt is like some kind of uh, uh, origin, um, I feel like the, outcome and like behavioral outputs of um what, whatever that motivation is or evolves into like um i feel like there's always been a lot of positive externalities towards the way you you sought to like embody um like how you wanted to be in the world yeah yeah i think yeah sometimes shitty things happen in life and you can either respond you can respond positively or you can let it just like make you cynical and pessimistic about the world and the people around you. And I, I think hard to know what drives people to take one path or another, but I'm, I feel good about taking the path that I've taken at least. Have you ever been cynical or pessimistic? Is that like a mindset that you're familiar with? (laughs) Mm, Not quite cynical or pessimistic. No. Um, but I would say like the, from like 20, beginning of 2020 to like, yeah, beginning of 2020 to like 
end of 2021, um, I would say I definitely struggled a lot with the world and life feeling a lot less colorful and a lot less gray or a lot more gray. Um, I, I think everyone sort of felt some, some sense of that through the pandemic, right? Just your support systems kind of dispersing life as you like normally experience it sort of shrinking into like this little microcosm of people that you feel safe interacting with. And I think that's probably the, the most gray I felt in life. Um, but yeah, I would say overall I've generally been, I generally fall on the more like, uh, especially my adult life fall on the more like I'm, I'm a seven out of 10 happiness on average, uh, I think on a, on a daily basis. How do you have, um, any like um favorite things that that kind of cheer you up um and help you get back to that seven seven out of ten or or more when you uh, fluctuate in the other direction Mm. i think a lot of it is the people i care a lot about um obviously i live with uh one of my best friends and mike um he's also been my co-founder since 2015 um uh janelle also mutual friend of ours andy um literally moved into this house um so we could spend a lot more time together um i think uh people for me um um it's a big that's a big driver yeah for sure um your book being on the the bill gates documentary recommended by bill gates do you ever do you ever think (laughs) Oh man, recommends me. <laughs> oh man, I don't, I don't really know. I think that was funny. It was cool. It was, it was nice. There was a stretch of time where all I would get um, screenshots of, of that that scene um, on Netflix. But I don't know. To me, it's a it's a cool little thing, but. Um, not something I think about a lot <laughs> on a day-to-day basis. It's just a byproduct of being lucky, right? Just in the right place, um, like MIT, at the right time, just as like some of the stuff was becoming interesting. Um, and then being also in an, in an environment um, in the writing program at MIT that like would cultivate just the... The, the skills that are necessary to execute on a project like that. Wow, um, that's a lot of credit to, to Poetry. <laughs> I do, I, uh, Professor Ed Barrett is, is is my guy, is my guy. I miss him. Don't you miss him, Andy? You know, I never had him. I only had Erica. Um, oh, you so only had Erica. Him. She's great, too. Uh, yeah, she was, she was awesome. She's great, too. Um. Uh, my favorite writing teacher actually at MIT was Marjorie. Did you, did you ever take a class from Marjorie? No. She did the graphic novels class. Um, but that was awesome. I, I like Juno Diaz. Yeah. Tell me about Marjorie. Oh, I, I guess Marjorie. You know Marjorie and, and Juno are, are, are significant others, right? Oh, what? Are they really? Then I maybe did meet her. We went out to dinner yeah. with Juno and, and someone. Ah, yeah, no, Marjorie. Marjorie, um, she got the Hugo Award, I believe, for her graphic novel, Monstrous. She's an incredible writer. Um, And 
Yeah, I think uh, obviously graphic novels are like, in just in terms of layout and writing, very similar to, um, to like film um, in terms of how screenplay is written. Um, so kind of a natural extension for me to to enjoy that. But she she's, I think she just gave me a, such a good appreciation for, for form and, and narrative and plot. Um, but I think sometimes like I, uh, you get so caught up in like little like overuse of devices um, that you like, that your stuff has no meat um, and, and, it, and it can get quite dry. And I think Marjorie was good. She helped me, she grounded me, held me accountable. Make sure I was like writing something like that actually had substance in it. For sure. Um, now, now that you're kind of, um, you know, it seems like your company's growing. Um, things are kind of uh, going okay. Uh, looking better than than 2020, 2021, perhaps. How uh, how does like your current position? I don't want to necessarily call it success yet or whatever, but like how does your current success? Um, like change your view of, of past projects um, and like things that maybe didn't reach the same kind of milestones that like your current um, like company is getting you towards. Do you feel like you, you see like mistakes in, in what you did previously? Like obviously you're always learning and growing, but um, yeah, I don't know how, how you want to take that. Yeah. Um, well, I guess I wouldn't call it success by any means. Um I think, yeah, it's, it's not success yet. Not even close. Um, I, I wouldn't call it on its way to success necessarily either. I, I, I would say we're, we're still in like super, super early days. Um, so it's, you know, there's a lot of work ahead of us and there's a lot of things to build and it's all really exciting. But um, I think that's still the mindset that I'm in. Um, there's nothing really yet to, to rest on because there's, there's no success to rest on at all yet. Um, or maybe like the project stage, do, like this being a project that has gotten further yeah. than maybe past endeavors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think each, each thing served a purpose, right? Uh, for example, the previous company remedy um, obviously did not end in the way that we wanted it to end. And uh, I love the team there to bits. Um, but truth is without the experience at remedy, without the network we built, without the customer relations that we've built, without the experience of building and failing and building and failing and, and doing it over and over again over the span of three years, like it, like the company we're building right now like would not exist. Um, like we wouldn't even have a fighting chance of making this really, really hard thing exist. Um, and then there's other things too, right? Like when you and I worked on Lean On Me with Linda back in college and I mean, um, uh, in college, I mean, yeah, sure. like. Maybe, maybe it didn't quite fully materialize into like a full fledged thing, like that we hoped it would it would be um, when when y'all went through Delta V and stuff like that. But it was it was still meaningful. I mean, I, I still get Lean on Me text today. Um, the fact that like people still use it on campus and like you know we've been off campus for how many years now, and the fact that like. Um, it's on other campuses, like it's on, I, I believe it's on Duke, Duke's campus, my significant other, like, is familiar with it. So it's just the fact that it did have a reach bigger than, like, what it was first conceived as, which was like an overnight hackathon project is kind of cool. Um, 
I think, I think, you know, I don't, I don't look at them. I don't look back necessarily and think, ah, oh, if I, if only I had done this, or if only we had done this, like it would have gone super differently. Um, Cause it's always easy to play that game. I think for me, it's just more appreciating. That's a, that's part of where I come from and, and what makes, what makes me able to do what we're doing now. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense. It totally does. Yeah. Um, w- to follow up on that, uh, there's been a, I mean, I don't know, everyone experiences their, their fair share of drama. Um, a couple like majorly painful ones that I'm aware of with you might've been like a hack MIT, uh, 2014 and were uh, like breaking up with, with the co-founders with remedy. Um, how, if, if you're willing to, to talk about these things, um, like how, how do you think about kind of going through those uh, those tough situations and like what can people learn about like dealing with drama and setbacks that seem kind of existential and, and just like very difficult? Like now you're the co-founder therapist. It's hard sometimes to appreciate like why certain things like that happen to you when they do happen. And it can feel like life's just like completely over sometimes when some of that stuff does happen. And having been through my fair share of those kinds of moments and then being able to have life roll forward three, four or five years and be able to look back on those moments from the comfort of, of five years of, of, of life moving on. Um, surprisingly, I find it really hard to wish those moments never happened. Which is like a strange thing to say, right? Like, like when when you go through something so so traumatic or so difficult, and then to say, well, five years later, if you could go back and rewrite your life story in a way where like that never happened, like I wouldn't do it. Um, and I think part of it is sometimes those kinds of moments teach you something about life that it would have required something of that magnitude to like change your mindset or teach you something about how life should should work or how you should approach life and how you should approach people. Um, like for example, I think from the hack MIT incident, just learning, learning how important it is to, how important it is to make sure you understand the people you surround yourself with and make sure there's alignment and values. Um, that you're surrounding yourself with people with, with high integrity. And that's like, that's in the way you approach situations is, is matched similarly. I think that was a really important learning experience for me. Um, uh, I think uh, most people don't know this, but like, you know, post the hack MIT incident, I think um, I spent a lot of my time reflecting, a lot of my, a lot of my time writing. Um, I spent a lot of time sharing my writing. Um, and I, I do think that like spending a lot of my time sharing more and more of my writing after hack MIT is I was more in this reflective space uh, led to ultimately like, O'Reilly reaching out to me to go write this book. Um, and, and so like in many ways, it's, it taught me certain things um, that I wish, you know, it, it would have been nice if I didn't have to go through something like that to learn about how life works and, and what to look for in people. Um, but I'm glad like I learned those things early on in my, in my life. So uh, I don't make those kinds of mistakes when the stakes are a lot higher. Um, and led to a cascade of events that gave me access to opportunities that I didn't, I may not have otherwise sort of like 
had access to um, just because it pushed me in a particular headspace and and prompted me to yeah and prompted me to write a lot more than I otherwise would um, remedy was hard the way it ended was hard um, but again like you know you have the privilege of life rolling forward a couple of years and you look back and you're like wow those connections that we had at remedy the way we treated people the way um, they now want to help us um, given how we helped them as we navigated a lot of the challenges building health tech digital health companies back when honestly healthcare was not a sexy place to be building uh, back in 2014 2015 2016 um, uh, that, that's been invaluable to us um, still really close with all the people that I was building with there uh, will Rose incredible human beings um, obviously on different paths in, in their own life journeys now, but um, I don't know, we, we grew up together um, and it didn't end up where any of us really wanted it to end up. And um, we had to, we had to all go separate ways um, or at least Mike and I went our, our way and Je uh, Rose went her way and, and Will went his way. Um, but it is, it is really special to be able to look back on those years and, and look at how much we grew up as individuals during those times, right? Um, we still feels very sibling-esque to go through that kind of experience. Amazing. Um, how do you, what are your favorite things and least favorite things about the world of professional baseball? <laughs> to be honest, I haven't, I feel like I was, I was shielded so much from anything real in baseball, um, from where I was sitting. Um, yeah, I think I was just looking at numbers, running, running, uh, statistical models, um, and eventually just trying to help connect the team with various people who, who work on, on stats and understand baseball way better than, better than I do. Um, what did you actually do? To be honest, I don't even know if we delivered anything of value. Um, we like thought about a couple of problems. Like one is, Hey, how do you position, um, uh, how do you position people like outfielders, um, uh, on the field given a particular pitcher, um, and uh, batter matchup. Right. Um, the other one was like sort of thinking about treating, um, pitching and as a, as a complicated rock, paper, scissors game, trying to figure out based off of what you just given this batter's preferences and patterns, how do you sequence the right um, the right sequence of pitches to to trick up somebody? Um, at, yeah, the, the best way to trick up somebody um, who's coming up to bat, um, stuff like that. Um, yeah, I think I was way too far away from it to like know anything about the whole White Sox scandal um, or <laughs> anything like that, uh, but. Yeah, I think uh, it was a, it was an interesting experience. It was very lightweight. Honestly, didn't take up a lot of my time, um, and mostly was connecting people, connecting the team to people who work in this work on the intersection of stats and, and sports to to come solve problems as opposed to solving them myself. Uh, I don't really know if anything meaningful came out of it. To be honest, the team's got the team has an incredible group of people already working. Uh, around the uh, the squad, so yeah, not too much to say there. 
is the AI apocalypse going to happen? And uh, how do you feel about like the super intelligence kind of fears? Yeah. I don't know if you've seen or used GPT-3. It's a, it's a cool toy. I would say it's difficult to teach it things sometimes that you would think should be relatively intuitive to, 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 to pick up. Um, I think one, one person said it really well. Um, they'd, they'd been using Codex for a little while. And honestly, the way they put it was, it felt really magical at first, um, but eventually you start to realize it's kind of just like a, a, an inline stack overflow search tool more than anything else. Um, for now, I think um, I think we're still a ways away. Um, we'll see though. We'll see. I think people we do we do understand some of the scaling physics of these models, and it takes every incremental unit of performance takes exponentially more sort of parameters to make work. Um, and so I guess you know if if Moore's law esque continues to hold through, we should be making continuously steady progress in, in terms of performance, assuming we're using similar kinds of architectures for the next five, six years. But um, I don't know, man. Machines that are conscious of their existence does not necessarily feel like something we've gotten close to, to tapping quite yet. Yeah, that's. I never thought about the Moore's law and the, the parameters being like exponentials that kind of make cancel out into like linear progress. Um, but it, that sounds like the the difficulty would probably be a little faster. Um, yeah. Huh. What do you consume for your information diet? I actually am not a consumer of a lot of primary information nowadays, uh, or even secondary information. I feel like I'm more of a tertiary information gatherer. I surround myself with a lot of people who ingest a lot of secondary sources who then tell me about what they think about the stuff happening in the world. Um, and that's generally how I get a lot of my information. I feel like I, I am relatively time poor. And so I focus a lot of my time on getting primary and secondary information on the things that really, really matter to me. And they're usually like super work related. That makes sense. And I think honestly, it's made me a little bit less and less of an interesting human being over time. Um, but that's okay. We make trade-offs. <laughs> yeah. What, what consumes all your time? Like I know it's work, but like, how does that break down? Is it like meetings? Um, it's a combination of meetings, solving problems, um, and managing people. Um, I think as this company scales a little bit, you start to realize more and more and more that your job as a founder is to, at the beginning is to like build, build a product that solves a problem, um, but very quickly translates as you reach some levels of, of positive momentum there, turns very quickly into your job is to build a team that builds a product that solves a problem. And um, there are all sorts of challenges to start to come up when you're working on really, really hard problems and you're trying to build teams to work on really, really hard problems. Because if you were one person trying to solve all those problems yourself, like you possibly could, but there's just like no version of the world in which you do that in a reasonable amount of time. Um, but 
now there's all these considerations of how you get people to work together well. How do you how do you manage emotions when people run into failure? Um, how do you manage interpersonal dynamics? Um, how do you get people from coming from different or domain experts coming from a totally different work culture to buy into an entirely new culture on how to work? Because um, startups are so different from a lot of the folks who come in from traditional healthcare um, settings to to come work on what we're building. So there's a lot of these components that I think are that are really important to unpack. Um, also, a lot of recruiting, a lot of hiring. Um, recently a lot of fundraising so that all kind of just takes up a lot of time for sure yeah so company architecture and um, humans and lubricating friction and uh, bringing more people into the system um asking. yes so sometimes i'm like well what what do i what do i do i don't know i don't even know what i do anymore but yet the time goes well, how, when was the last time you like wrote code oh uh, actually I, I don't like it hasn't been that long. It's probably been a month since I've like written a meaningful amount of code, but my engine team tells me not to touch the code base anymore. Uh, I had a really funny conversation with Josh, who's is one of uh, one of our engineers who actually lives with Mike and I. Uh, and you know, I was working on a modeling infrastructure, machine learning modeling infrastructure early on. And I was like, um, you know, John, I'm really sorry. Like there's, there's definitely a lot of tech debt here. Um, just cause not a lot of the stuff is built in a way that's like for, it was mostly just like show that we could do this as opposed to like build this in a way that's maintainable. And Josh looks, takes one peek at the code base and looks at me and he goes, Nikhil, I know you use the word tech debt, but honestly, I would say this is, uh, all debt and no tech. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh dude, that's harsh, but okay. <laughs> So there, there you have it. Um, I, I, uh, I try to contribute where I can, but uh, the team's like, well, keep your hands off the code base. Maybe one more question, if you, if you don't mind, would be any other thoughts on like company strategy or like general fundraising, like things people don't know uh, as I look ahead to building my my org to one day hopefully be as as beautiful as yours the thing that stood out most to me is how easy it is to make mistakes in hiring um and i think it's like kind of insidious the way that kind of works but basically like sometimes like early on the way the way that hiring kind of goes is you go like well i kind of have to do this thing and um maybe like um, it like requires like a, somebody with a marketing background and like, oh, well, I, I've got this friend or like a friend of a friend who comes like super highly recommended, like with a marketing background. Um, and they're interested, we're excited about what we're doing. We're excited about them. Like, let's just like, let's just do it. Right. And you hire this person and maybe they have a bunch of stuff on their resume that makes it seem like they'd be good at the job. Um, they come in, um, and you realize really quickly, like, you know, they're not really cutting it. Um, for the job. And unfortunately, it gets to a situation where either you have to let them go or uh, you're too conflict avoidant to let them go and it creates lots of problems um, for, for the company you're building. Um, and I think it's like a thing that like actually plays out really, really often because of how, you know, 
oftentimes you're too hungry to eat sometimes in startups. And so if you have things that you kind of want to do and someone wants to do them for you, it's very easy just to make the hiring decision and try to move on. Um, but I, I, I found that like for us, that's just rarely ever really worked out. Um, what we've kind of had to like force ourselves to do now is be very specific as to what is the job. Like, what is this person's mission statement that we're about to hire? What does that mean in terms of their, their core competencies and skills? Um, and what does that actually mean about like the kinds of things that you'd be looking for in their past experiences that give you signal that they would actually be able to do the job? And the level of specificity there is really important um, because it turns into a scorecard that now defines every interaction you have with a potential candidate where you're evaluating them on all these major axes that you've predetermined are critical to being able to accomplish the mission statement. And you run a process where you talk to many, many, many possible candidates until one jumps off the screen on the scorecard. Um, and you know you've done this right when it's very easy for you to pick the right candidate after you've run our process. Um, and you know you've done this wrong when you have a bunch of candidates and you're like, oh, well, they all have their own like strengths and superpowers. So like, you know, you can't really go wrong picking any one of them. Um, so I, I think that like having that clarity on, on mission objectives and competencies um, and having that scorecard before you start running a hiring process, I think for me is like bit, been one really big realization. Um, across two companies. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I was just reading um, just before this, this uh, article by, I think it's Graham Duncan. It says, uh, what's going on with that person mm. over there or something? It's basically just all about, yeah, hiring is super important. Mm. And there's all these biases and uh, yeah. references are key and uh, <laughs> kind of, you can take like a lot of different- films. Who? The book Who? Who it's Have you heard of the book Who? It's like yeah. the high output manage. Yeah. Great book. Highly recommend. Yeah. One of the frames that I like. That... That's one. Go ahead. What? Mm-hmm. He said. Um, no, all you. All you. He said. <laughs> uh, I try to interview someone like I'm trying to find them the best possible job in the industry. And that might happen to be mine um, or not. But like there has to be that alignment from like the objective perspective, not just like, oh, this person meets some like bare minimum. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. I like that. Okay. I'm going to press stop. Anything else to contribute? No, I think we're good, dude.